voilà ça. So this afternoon, of course, I was reviewing uh, the next section of the text that we'll be looking into together this afternoon. I'm very deeply moved by it. Uh, it just strikes me as having so much depth. I mean, almost like unspeakable. And it really brought me back to the beginning of so many of the, these revelations, these revealed teachings that Dujum Lingba received, primarily from the Saroru Havachra. Saroru Havachra. It's the Sanskrit for Lakeborn Vajra. Lakeborn Vajra. Soke Dorji. The speech emanation of Padmasambhava. And there's a lot of commonality to them. There's like it's like variations in the theme. I remember years ago I played a, a piece of four variations by Beethoven. He had a simple theme, and then he, he just worked with it four different ways. But it was always the same theme, but each time came out differently. You know? Like that, like that. That whether it's the... Um, whether it's the... No, what was it called? The, I can't even remember. Now, the foolish dharma. The foolish dharma of an idiot clothed in mud and feathers. Whether it's that magnificent little text, which is uh, incredibly profound. And, and incredibly sweet as well. Whether it's that, or whether it's Shabhadra of Conscious Awareness Tantra, or whether it's the enlightened view of Samadabhadra, each of these. Or whether it's the Vajra essence, the, the large one. You know. They all start out in the same way. Same, same theme. Interestingly, they either make no reference to the preliminary practices, or just a very, very brief one. Like in the Vajra essence, just a very brief one. Like one line, you know? Do the seven, do the seven preliminaries. And then he just goes right on, you know? This does not imply that they're not important. Because clearly, I, I don't think there is a, a Dzogchen Lama, I don't think there is a Vajrayana Lama who thinks, oh, preliminaries? No, they're not important. I don't think there's even a single one. That they are important, that the mind, like a, like a field, like an unplowed field that's never been used for farming, as it needs to be prepared, you need to get the rocks out. There are stumps. You need to get the stumps out. You need to till it. You need to aerate the soil. You need to mulch it to fertilize it. You need to make sure it has sufficient water and all of that. And that's preliminary practices. That's preliminary practice. You don't just say, oh, there's a field. Let's throw some, throw some seeds at it and see what happens. Something might sprout, but probably won't get very far. Right? So the mind is a field, and meditation is cultivation. But I do find it interesting that in the text after text after text, sometimes not even mentioning them, or just a brief reference. He leaves it open. I think it, he leaves it open. And I love that, I have to say. I've read many other texts. I just finished, finished translating one, where very explicitly do this one, this one, this one, and this is how many times you do it, and so forth. I have respect for that as well. These are great teachers, great teachers. I cannot say that the one I just finished translating was in the Pema Lingba lineage. Is it for me to say that Dujum Lingba was somehow superior than Pema Lingba. It's just silly. Silly even ask the question. It's a meaningless question, right? So I do not. Ask the question, nor do I try to answer a silly question. But I think the fact that Dujum Lingba, Padmasambhava, leaves that open, I think is quite significant. Because if we ask, what's the point of the preliminary practices? Well, you know, satjang, satjang, to accumulate, to accumulate merit, right? And now we know what merit is. It's not brownie 
merit badges and so forth is something of tremendous importance. And the jangma, the purification. So it's very easy to approach this kind of like just with faith. One even could say blind faith. Well, I'll do this, and I'm sure there must be benefit. I don't see any. You know, I've just finished the Vajrasattva. Well, thank, thank goodness that's over. It was already a long mantra. It took me so long to get finished. But thank goodness I finished it. And kind of like, well, now what? Oh, I, now I have to do prostrations. Oh, man, I hope my knees make it. I hope my back can hold up. You know, you know. So it's easy to do it that way. You know, it's, hmm. But we can ask. And there's probably some benefit. You know, there's probably some benefit. But we can ask, are there any signs if you're doing sakjang, if you're engaging in practices to accumulate merit, to really kind of charge up your battery, your dharma battery, because that's what, it, that's what it's for. You can lose merit. You can, you can ac- accumulate merit. And then, just like having st- charged up a battery, then you can engage in activities like slander and abuse and abandoning dharma and discord and so forth and so on. And then uh, you just punch the hole in your battery and all it drains out, you know? You, put, you could have put years into it, and then you can lose your merit just like that, right? Or you can focus on a, here's something you really don't want to do. Heart, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, because it's really bad news. But you really don't want to look at a bodhisattva and express contempt. It's not going to serve you well at all. Or ridicule, despising, denigration. It's really unfortunate. You can read Shantideva on that one. It's a really bad idea. That sounds okay until you point out the other side of that statement. How do you know who's a bodhisattva? I mean, I really wish they all had little neon signs. Look out, I'm a bodhisattva. I mean, just look out, you know. I'm here to help you, but really, don't direct really negative hatred, contempt, despising. It will really serve you very badly. So, bodhisattva, bodhisattva. It'd be so much simpler. Then we say, okay, that's when you have to, hands off of that one, you know. Be nice. And then the other one, no bodhisattva. You're a schmuck. You know. Then you can at least vent with somebody. You can be confident that one's not a bodhisattva. You're really a schmuck. I'm much better than you are. You know. But that doesn't happen. So that can either make us really edgy and anxious. I have these negative thoughts going all over the place. I hope none of them hit a bodhisattva because it's going to ricochet back. <laughs> you know. I don't want that to happen. I mean, you read Shandadeva, like one thought, one burst of real negative energy toward Bodhisattva. Really bad idea. Really bad idea. So that's how you use up merit. That's how you drain it. You just, like, like somebody puncturing a hole in your tank, and it just all drains out. You know? Anger, Shandadeva says in the sixth chapter, anger is the, if you want to destroy your merit, anger is the most virulent mental affliction for destroying merit, isn't it? That's that, yeah. So there's craving, there's, there's attachment, there's jealousy and so forth, but oh, anger just kind of torches it. Just like, oh, where'd my merit go? Where'd my merit go? So this sounds like a bunch of faith, you know, just like, okay, religious talk. That's what, they, that's what those Buddhists say. But let's ask a practical question. Is there any way to bring this into experience that we can get some sense that we're not just groping in the dark? I did this, I did so a number of prostrations, I did this, that there must have been a lot of merit, but heck, what do I know? You know, it's easy to fall into that. And then it was kind of, well, I, I think I, I finished them now. I guess I must have accum- accumulated a lot of merit. And I did that Vajrasattva, and I think there must be a lot of obscurations gone. I hope so. Not quite sure. But I hope so, you know. But at least I finished them, you know. 
That happens a lot. But if, can we make it pragmatic? Is there any way to kind of that the, the, the rubber hits the road, the tires hit the road? I guess it gets traction in your life. I think there is. Not with certainty, not, you know, like we have some kind of a merit calibrator, an obscuration purification calibrator. I'm not that ridiculous. But I think there's something. I think there's something. Hmm. How do you know? When, for example, obscurations have been, we're not talking about any really deep, radical, irreversible purification, but something really significant has happened. So that some purification has happened, obscurations, negative karma, purified, and so forth, that the whole idea is that when you venture into deeper practices, and that includes shamatha, but very much especially the Vajrayana practices, state regeneration, completion, Dzogchen, that as you're venturing into this practice, it's devoting yourself to the practice, especially when you're going full-time, that you're not just hitting one obstacle after another that just beats you up, you know, just one step and beat, you get mugged, like going into a really bad neighborhood. You just get mugged and you go down and you mugged again and mugged again and mugged again. You can kind of lose the inspiration that way. And so, how do you know? And so I, I think there's, one can get some sense. The obscurations maybe are attenuating. Maybe something's working. Because I've known some very good practitioners. And obscurations, a kind of serenity. A serenity. An inner calm, a kind of composure. It's not just there when things are going well, when everything around you is serene. That's easy. But kind of a composure. Good times, bad times, turbulent times, serene times. Composure. This implies the mind must have been purified. Maybe it happened in past life, maybe earlier this life, but one way or another, there's some purification there. If you're not just reacting, rebounding, rebounding to everything that comes up, up and down, up and down, a whole bunch of oscillations, some more ballast, some more gravitas, some more groundedness, kind of a serenity, kind of contentment. I've known really good practitioners whose minds have been quite purified. A lot of contentment. Mental afflictions come up, sure, but they don't, don't, they kind of, it's almost like they kind of lost heart a little bit. You know, like they used to have that confidence, I can just beat you up any time, you'll be, you'll be roadkill when I'm finished with you. And then mental afflictions come up, and they say, well, okay. <laughs> they just walk away. <laughs> Something like that, you know? They're not quite so virulent. They're still there. But they don't thrash you so savagely. I think that's indication. What about merit? Merit. Now, we just call it punya, since merit is kind of a silly word. But whatever we call it, you know what it is. It's virtue, it's goodness, it's power of virtue. How do you know? We do all kinds of things. Any kind of, any act of virtue accrues merit. Any act of virtue, said the Buddha, any act of virtue has the also derivative benefit that it also purifies negative karma. Engage in some virtuous action, that purifies negative karma from the past. Otherwise, we'd never have enough time to experience all the fright, uh, ripenings of our karma. There'd never be enough time. In one lifetime, you'd have so much karma, it would take you, I don't know, a thousand lifetimes to be able to experience all the fruition of it. But in a thousand lifetimes, each one of them, you're getting enough for a thousand more, so you'd have this backlog of, you know, just infinite karma waiting for you. And it doesn't happen. So the Buddha himself said every act of virtue does tend to have that effect of attenuating, burning, releasing, negative karma. So there's a lot of evening out there. So what indications might there be? Not, not absolute, again, no merit calibrator, but 
do we have to simply walk in the dark, be totally ignorant about whether merit is really being accrued? Well, I think we can get some indicated. And I would say one word. Durable inspiration. Robust inspiration. Anybody can meet a great being, a mahasattva, a mahasattva like, Pat, like His Holiness. Or I just finished watching a friend of mine who's a monk. He just sent me a, a, a YouTube. I, I, stopped medita- I stopped my session to watch the video. Really good, good way to spend time. It was a video done, it was a life story of Shokye Tijen Rinpoche. It's really one of the great, great, great ones of the Sakya tradition. And I just finished watching that. And I'd never seen him before. I'd never met him. He passed away in 2007. But as soon as they showed his face, as soon as he came on the video, father crying. Just oh, I look at his face. So much kindness. Such serenity, but kindness, serenity, and, and shall I say serenity and serenity and deeper serenity. I just I just want I just kept on watching, you know. There's a holy one. I've met people like that. I didn't meet him. That's Punya. This person is like supercharged battery. Everything he was doing, everywhere he went, in Tibet, in Mustang, in Dharmasala, elsewhere in Nepal, and so forth. Just this flowing, this outflow. Like he just had more punya than he could possibly hold. So it was just gushing all over the place. You know, helping here. Everything he was doing, just an outflow of punya. Helping other people accrue punya. But just like he had just more than he could handle. It was just flowing everywhere. Just one marvelous deed after another. Including giving teachings to his own Dalai Lama. His Holiness received the Lamde teachings, the classic teachings of the Sakya tradition from that Lama. They showed a photo. So, robust, durable, enduring inspiration, which goes with a sense of humility. And this person just, you know, I think, I know, I I believe I heard it didn't say this in this video. Video, I don't think so. But I think he was one of the primary tutors, maybe the primary tutor of Sakya Tisanavaji. Yeah, Sakya Tisanavaji. It would be a natural. So there he is. He became the tutor of the head of the whole order, Sakyatisanamajriya. And so, so, Punya, what you saw in this man, here, there he is the greatest. He's a tutor for the Dalai Lama, you know. And yet look at him. Just look at the way he walks, the way he gestures, the way he just gives a head blessing. And it's like just this embodiment of humility. You know, that's Punya. That's Punya. There's a sweetness there, a contentment there. But an inspiration that simply continues like, like a great river, just flowing the whole life to be of service. An expression of devotion. Always practicing. Always practicing. Whether in solitude, as soon as he's out of solitude, he's there being of service. As soon as the person is gone, they said, as soon as he's giving audiences or interviews to people, as soon as they're finished, he's going right back to his practice. So we don't have to remain in the dark. It's not that mysterious. Mysterious. And then I think when we really take seriously these preliminary practices, then we really should be focusing what's working, what's really helping, because these are practical. This is the quality of body-mind, quality of presence you want to bring to your shamatha practice, your vipassana, your bodhicitta, your vajrayana, your Dzogchen practice. A suitable vessel that's ready to have the nectar of these teachings poured into them, holds them well, 
and is transformed by them. You know? So if the, the classic ones, the sets, if they bring about that transformation, then I simply bow to them and those who are practicing in such a way. That's it. I have nothing more to say there. I just bow to those who are practicing in that way. And they, they transform in that way, and they mature in that way, and they are, they are ripened and liberated. There's a nice word, mindel. Ripened and liberated. And so the ripening part is from the preliminary practices, isn't it? The ripening part is the, lim- is the preliminary practices. And that will eventually include the shamatha, relative bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta. And then the, f- the fruition of that is dal, liberated. You remember Rangdal, natural liberation, self-liberation? Dal is liberation, freedom, right? So first you get ripened through the preliminary practices, and then you are liberated by the main practices. And that's the whole of the path right there. But how that mimba, how that, that ripening, just like a fruit, it's the same word, like a fruit ripening, it's the same word, mimba, ripening a fruit, devu mimba. Oh, how that occurs, there's so many ways. I've seen this myself. So I've seen it myself. Milarepa, I don't think he ever did 100,000 prostrations. He might have done 100,000 this, I, but I doubt it. The numbers never come up. His, he had Marpa as his guru. So Marpa, knowing he had an awful lot of obscurations to clarify from his negative actions, he gave him his own unique, his hand-tailored you know, preliminary practice for purification and for accruing merit. And it took years. You know. And so there are many ways... I think one wants to be very flexible, very open here, not dogmatic, rigid, or hyper-traditional, without throwing tradition out. I think you see, you see nothing I'm saying is, it, is rejecting tradition. It's just that we mustn't be tradition-bound, as if they're handcuffs. This is the only way. If you don't do this, then you're not ready. Padmasambha never say that. Dijum Lingba never says that. Padmasambhava never says that. Let it? No. No, no. So there are many ways. But you can see it when people are mimba, when they're getting ripe. You can see. You can actually see if you look closely. Uh, this person's ripe. I've seen. Even I. And I'm, a, I'm nothing special at all. I have no special insights at all. But, you know, it's kind of obvious sometimes. Uh, this person's really ripe. Then you take care of those people. Because they're not going to waste time. So that was a little introduction to preliminary practices. The text is incredibly rich, so I don't want to go on much longer, but a little bit more I will, because it's really important. You have preliminary practices. And then what? This, this pattern, if any, anybody who's drawn to the Dujum lineage of Dujum Lingma himself, whose disciples among them, 13 is he rainbow body, that does kind of catch the attention. You know? And this whole future orientation of his revealed teachings, saying these are for people of the future. These teachings will benefit greatly people living in the cities of the West. That does kind of catch the attention a little bit. Then what's next? Preliminaries. And the format's the same. It keeps on cropping up again and again. So, okay, this is, the one, this is the one he was following. And the first one is this. And this is going to be remarkable because this is right after, this is when you're in kindergarten, right? You just finished kindergarten. Preliminaries. And now you're ready to just start tiptoeing into the main practices. And the first one is a simple question. And that is among the body, speech, and mind. Which is primary? Which is the kunjek gyalpo? Which is the all-creating sovereign? which is the agent. That's deep. Which is the agent? Body, speech, or mind? Don't memorize the right answer. That's not going to help you at all. Which is the agent? Which is the agent? Which is primary? Which is derivative? Check. And of course, we know the right answer. But if you just memorize the right answer, that's not going to help you. 
mind. The all-created and sovereign, the mind, that creates all the karma, that creates everything, from which then speech manifests. But it only manifests because there's mind. Body manifests. Only relative to mind. No mind, no speech, no body. Mind. Mind is primary. And so all of the, the weight comes in on mind. All of the weight. Because body, speech, oh, by the way, the body, that refers to the whole physical world too. Body, speech, and mind. Everything comes to mind. Right? There it is. So, would it take you five minutes to draw that conclusion? Or five years? If you don't draw that conclusion, you better just hang out there for a while. Because there's a right answer. And if you don't get the right answer, it doesn't mean something bad. It just means you can't follow this path. If you don't know that one. And I just believe it, but if you don't know it, then you can't go to the second. You can't get to second grade without first grade. You have to know that. As Lama Zubarimachi said, when asked, you have to believe in reincarnation to achieve enlightenment. He said, no, you don't have to believe it. You have to know it. I love that. Of course, it's true. And then on that basis, look how it sets it up. Look at the strategy. Among body, speech, and mind, among the physical, the mental, which is most important? Mind, the all-creator, the sovereign, the agent, the doer. Good. Nailed it. Now, mind, where did it come from? And you look for its real origins and not finding. Mind. When you think mind, what comes to mind? It's got to be personal. You're not looking for a Buddhist mind. You're looking for... Because this word mind corrupts upon all the languages. So you have to take the word mind in your language. And when you say mind, as you have one, that's primary among your body, speech, and mind, in your own language, good. What's the referent of mind? Where does it come from? Is it really coming from someplace? Is it really located someplace? And when a mind or mental state or mental process vanishes, where does it go? So he sets everything up to mind and then empty of origin, empty of location, empty of destination. And again, just... Memorize, and that doesn't help. Anybody can memorize that. It takes about five seconds. But if you have to see that, you have to get some sense. Whoa, that's like a shocker. This mind that's tormented me, that's blessed me, makes me so happy, makes me most so miserable, keeps me up night, makes me feel dull, excites me, agitates me, terrifies me. This mind, this unruly mind, like a wild elephant in a rut. This mind that is so destructive, this mind that is so helpful. And then, and then you can't even find it. Where did you come from? Where are you? Where do you go? Unfind, 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 unfindable, unfindable, unfindable. Okay, you got that one straight. Okay, now you're ready to practice shamatha. Yeah. The next step is, okay, you ready? Now, go off into solitude. Take the four empowerments, like we do every morning. And now, oh, take the mind as a path. Now that you kind of got it figured out, it's primary and it's empty. You've softened it all up. Primary and it's empty. All right, now sit down. Bless yourself with the four empowerments. And now just sit there and watch mind until it dissolves away. So we're going to, as we see, look where we are in the text. That's quite deep into the text, right? Everybody knows where it looks like at least halfway through uh, the whole text. So we know where we are in the text. We know the context. 
You've already achieved shamatha, already achieved vipassana, already had dream yoga experience, already realized rikpa. Simply that your realization of rikpa is veiled by concepts. So it's time to do some house cleaning, some dusting, and sweep away the dust, the dust that's veiling your awareness of who you are. Right. So we know where it is. So we'll read shortly. I don't want to talk anymore. Let's just meditate. But here's the practice for this session, because this is going to be very directly correlated to this passage of the text coming, coming up. Um, take the mind as a path for one session. Please find a comfortable posture. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And in the culmination of this process, rest with this core sense of ease, of looseness and relaxation in your body and mind. Such that the winds of the mind are not perturbing the stillness of your own awareness. Then to continue to go deeper and deeper into the settling of your respiration and its natural rhythm. As you sustain the stillness of your awareness, illuminating 
the space of the body, gently, ever so gently attending to the fluctuations within this field corresponding to the in and out breath. And continue to relax deeply and even more deeply, releasing with every out breath, all the way to the end, releasing thoughts all the way to the end gently arousing awareness with each inhalation. Calm and soothe with this system of the body and mind. Let your eyes be gently open. Your gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you. Your whole face soft and relaxed. The eyes soft. The forehead open. And almost effortlessly, Simply direct the light of your awareness to the space of the mind. 
and see what you see, what comes up. And like the old man sitting on the bench watching other people's children play, let your awareness hold its own ground, relax, serene, free of hope and fear, desire and aversion. And simply take note of whatever arises in the space of the mind, attending to it, recognizing it. But no need to talk about it, no need to label. You already know it before the label comes in. Whatever arises, simply let it be, observe its nature. As you rest in the stillness of your awareness, observing simultaneously the movements of your mind, There's no value in judging your practice, how good you are at it. When you're doing it, you're doing it. When you're doing it, you are achieving shamatha. You are settling your mind in its natural state. And by the time you notice that your mind has wandered, you've been carried away, by the time you have noticed that, you're no longer carried away. So there's nothing to be upset about. It's already finished. So stay right where you are and observe what's coming up right now with no frustration, no sense I'm good at it, I'm bad at it. Just do the practice and be content to have the opportunity to settle your mind in its natural state.
Voilà, so let's go directly to the text. On page 180. And to repeat the last sentence that I read yesterday, then, with no need to seek elsewhere for meditation, the knot of the mental grasping that occurs in shamatha will unravel right where it is. That's very promising. Because the knot of mental grasping that occurs in quiescence, of course, is the mental grasping of identifying with and grasping onto bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. And he's saying, this is how it just releases itself. You don't need to, again, apply some antidotes. Like, what do I need to do? I'm finding a lot of grasping and preference and clinging to the luminosity or the bliss, the non-conceptuality when I'm resting in shamatha. What shall I do? What, you know, bring in the troops, bring in the, the uh, cavalry. You know, what do I need to do? Don't do anything. Just keep on releasing. Just keep releasing. Let it even that's an overstatement, like you're supposed to do something, you release that. No, let it release itself. Get out of the way. And then we continue. So he's given, as I said yesterday, he's given this, he's taken, plucked out one really virulent, toxic, incredibly destructive mental affliction, hatred, take that simply as an example. And now he's seeing, he's taking that as one example, and then he's using that as an example, then he's going to cast the net much broader. So he says thus, just as hatred is ascertained as unborn and self-liberating or self-releasing, all right, unborn, it's not really there. It didn't really come into existence. Having not been existence, having not been existent, it didn't at some time become existent, right? From this perspective. Now, good. Relative perspective, of course. You're not always angry. At 2.05, I wasn't angry, and then 2.07, something really ticked me off, and I was, got really upset. And so then I, I wasn't angry, and then I was angry. Sure, on that relative level, of course. But from this perspective, Rigpa, it never comes up. That is, hatred, this mental affliction, is unborn. It's unborn, and so it's an empty appearance, of course. But then it, the empty appearance, just like a mirage, it just, all by itself. How sweet. It never had any power in the first place, and then it kind of a little wisp, and then it's gone. So just as, as hatred is ascertained as unborn and self-liberating, know that whatever mental signs arise, signs are just the images, the appearances, the impulses, and so forth. Know that whatever mental signs arise, including the 84,000 mental afflictions, that's the big classification, comes from the three, and the three go extending out, out, out. So whatever signs arise, including the 84,000 mental afflictions, they are all, they're all unborn and self-liberating or self-releasing. There is no point to getting rid of thoughts and cultivating non-conceptuality. In other words, don't, don't tire yourself out. You have 84,000 of them. How long is it going to take you to apply an antidote for each one? That's going to be a very, very big tool chest. You know, and then have to bring them out. You get so tired having to apply antidotes to each one. There's no point to get rid of thoughts. Everyone, well, oh, I have to get rid of, oh, there's another one, oh, another one, another one. And then cultivating, as if there's something really to cultivate here. Forget about it. And now here he gives some nice analogies. If one bamboo stalk is hollow inside, all bamboo stalks are hollow inside. You don't need to check every single one of them. One is a very good indicator for all the rest. 
So what he's saying here, of course, he's going to elaborate on this, but I'll just give away the plot. And that is, if you really understood how hatred, which for many people is the mental affliction that really brings the most grief, because it's this rumination business, you know, as, as the word rumination is used in modern psychology, it's not just mind-wandering. I, I checked it out, I checked the definition online. Rumination, as they're using modern psychology, has this negative quality to it. It's negative, it's resentful, it's bitter, it's, it's, got, some, it's got some anger in it, you know. And uh, it's very, of course, endemic. So we know what, and of course it it's plays an absolutely crucial role in depression, by and large. Not every single time, I'm sure, but if one is chronically caught up in rumination, that's going to depress you, chronically, until you finally break the habit. And so, but here's the point, you don't necessarily have to break the habit, just release the grasping, right? So if you've really understood, this is the one key that opens a thousand doors, or actually 84,000 doors. If you can really understand that one, that real mean critter called hatred, and how it's unborn, and even when the appearance of it arises, you don't have to do anything. Just let it release itself. Once you get that point, you say, oh, what? but that's true for all the other 84,000 minus one. Right? So you've seen one bamboo sock, you've seen them all. That's what he's saying here. And likewise, if one bamboo, if one bamboo, joint, is, if one bamboo joint is closed off, all bamboo joints are closed off. You've seen one, you've seen them all. If you know that one water drop is wet, you know that all water drops are wet. You don't need to keep on testing and testing. And likewise, by knowing that an instant of thought is unborn, an instant of any thought, take one sample, and if you can really ascertain that an instant of thought, whatever that thought might be, if you can ascertain that it is unborn and self-liberating, then you know that every thought is unborn and self-liberating. It's very, very powerful. Ascertaining an instant of mental consciousness as unborn and self-liberating is called ascertaining on the basis of a single instance. So there was not only it's not only this impulse or this or that impulse, this mental affliction or that imp, that that mental affliction. But we're going now just to an instant of mental consciousness, like substrate consciousness. That's just an instant of mental consciousness. If you can ascertain that a simple just a an instant means like a pulse, just like that a pulse. And they're finite in duration, right? Pulse, pulse, pulse. That's how Buddhist understanding of mind generally is. Just a whole sequence of pulsations arising and passings. If you can just simply take a single instant, a single pulsation, a mental consciousness arising like a, like a wave on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, in the ocean. Just a wave comes up. Just one pulse, one wave of consciousness coming up. If you can ascertain that one moment as, as unborn and self-liberating, then by implication you've, you've understood all the rest. It's understanding the nature of consciousness altogether as being unborn, self-liberating. Unborn, empty of inherent nature. Self-liberating means liberating yourself right down to rikpa. And you can do that on the basis of a single instant. If one rejects that instant of consciousness, okay, I don't, I don't like that one. That was an angry one. Or that was an unhappy one. Or that was a fearful one. I don't. Want, I want another one. Next, you know. Next, give me give me a better one. Than that. I don't like that one. If one rejects that instant of consciousness, then looks for something else. There's nothing to be identified. So it is called identifying on the basis of oneself. Don't look elsewhere. 
You're not going to find you're not going to find elsewhere something you didn't find here. Any instant will do. Since its character is revealed as self-liberating, it is called establishing competence on the basis of liberation. Okay, so we have this whole theme of confidence. I spoke of faith the other day. Go the other day, faith. It's a different word. It's confidence. It's called deng topa, deng duba, establishing or acquiring competence. Confident it has a bit stronger punch to it than simply faith. Different word. So how do you get that confidence? I think I, me- I must have mentioned, because I think I always do, at the beginning of these eight-week retreats, my aspiration is that when we do part, you'll, you'll leave, you'll go your separate way, with confidence. Confidence, right? And so this is confidence based on the basis of liberation. Confidence is in, coming from inside. Confidence not only in your skill as a meditator, but confidence seeing that your mind actually is self-liberating. And you don't need to see how much. All you see to need to see is one instant. And if that one instant is self-liberating, then you know all the other instances, whatever they may be, are self-liberating. In establishing confidence on the basis of liberation, there are four ways of liberation. Now, this is worth memorizing. For this crops up multiple times in Dzogchen literature. Four types, four ways of liberation, four ways of release. It's the same word, dul. I mentioned min dul, ripening, and then release, ripening and freedom, ripening and li- being liberated. So four ways of just this freeing, this freeing. So the first one, whatever thoughts arise, and by thoughts, again, they're using the word thoughts here like William James does, just mental impulse, stuff happening in the mind, an emotion, a desire, memory, fantasy, whatever it may be. Just, we'll just call that a thought, some movement of the mind. Whatever thoughts arise, their character remains primordially liberated. So that's the first one. Yedel. They are forever free. That's another way of saying it. Primordially means forever. They've, they've never been otherwise. So primordially is fine. Primordial is fine. But they're forever free. By, yeah, they've always been free. They've always been released. So it's not something new that freshly happens. So that's the first one. Primordially liberated. Second one, self-liberated. Nothing else needs to come in and rescue them. They liberate themselves. They release themselves. They heal themselves. Instantly liberated. That's clear. Completely liberated. That's clear, too. So those are the four four types of liberation. Primordial, self, instant, and complete. Now let's unpack that. How does that play out? When a thought of attachment, so now we shift over from a hatred to attachment, the other one, real sticky one, because we like attachment, it feels good. It's very promising. You know, when attachment comes up, this is going to make me happy. I'm going to get something here. Something good's coming, or I got something good, and I will have to hold on to it. I like that. That's why it's stemming from bliss, right? Because we like attachment. It's fun. <laughs> so when the thought of attachment suddenly arises, its character remains primordially liberated, its own nature. In other words, you don't have to do something to it to liberate it. It's just by its very nature primordially liberated. So there is now no additional basis of liberation. It's a simple point. keeps on hammering it in. There's nothing else you need to do to that afflictive thought of attachment. It's going to release itself. It's already by nature released, or by, by nature there, free. So... So chill. So 
interesting way of saying, right? And then it liberates itself. Well, he's kind of hammering the nail in deeper. It liberates itself without being liberated by anything else. In other words, in this perspective, this is Okshin, of course. There's, there's, for example, sexual lust. Okay? A lot of people suffer from it. Well, Buddhism has a whole repertoire, a whole, whole toolkit. How would you, okay, you rolled up the sleeve, okay, how should we handle this? You know, bring up, you know, get your big hairy arms out there. Okay, you want to do the, you would want to do it the nice, the, what way, the tough way or the easy, the nice way, good cop or bad cop. Bad cop is, this is a sausage full of shit. And it's bony shit, you know, it's got bones in there and internal organs and blood and piss and, so go for it. Go ahead, try to, try to like that, try to want to hug that. Oozing all over the place. Saliva and earwax and snot and spittle and sweat and toe jam and piss and excrement. And exactly which part of this were you attracted to? So that's one way of dealing with it. Works quite, quite, quite well. Or you can go the impermanence route. Oh, you can go the loving-kindness route. There are many ways of dealing with it. Yeah? Big toolkit. Or just no route at all. Let it go. Release it. Don't grasp onto it. In other words, don't try to solve the problem with another problem. And the problem here in the Dzogchen level is grasping. So you're already grasping to the attachment, already identifying with it, already being troubled by it. It's afflicting you. And say, good, now what do I need to do about it? So you get out something. It's like seeing, it's like seeing something really grimy, like a real pot that's really grimy. You say, oh, I need to clean that. And not even noting that the hand that you're about to clean it with is, is at least as grimy. Well, let's clean that one up. Well, it's not working very well. Let's rub it. Let's do it some more. Let's do it some more. Grasping, trying to heal grasping is going to be a long process liberates itself without being liberated by any, anyone else, anything else, so there is no other antidote. There are no other antidotes to liberate it. So that's the self-liberating. Okay, the first one's primordial, now self. It does it all by itself. doesn't need any outside agent to do it. And then, as the thought instantly observes itself, and that is as soon as it comes up. Now, this is so familiar, isn't it? This is, now, you, we see where, see where you are in the book. You know that's all that's gone by. But now he says, instantly liberated. As soon as the thought comes up, it just, it just is already on its way out. It's kind of like, bye. It's almost like they're coming up just long enough to say, bye. And then, oh, you're already gone. You couldn't stay for a cup of tea? No. Bye. You know, like that, just like that. By the time you even notice, they're all saying goodbye. Because you're noticing the very moment they arise. In other words, they're not arising in a state of ignorance. They're arising in a state of vidya. They're arising in the field of vidya, of awareness, of knowing. As soon as they arise in the field of knowing, they release themselves. They get to you when they arise in the field of avidya. That's when they catch you from behind, get you by the back of the neck, like a terrier, terrier catching a rat. Creeps up on him, gets him by the neck, and then he shakes him. You're the rat. The mental afflictions of the terrier. Right? That's how they get to you, though. They get to you from behind. So you don't see them coming. And then they feel like they've really got a lot of power. They're grasping. But only because they come up in unawareness. 
So if you're right there, right there, as soon as it rises, and they come, they manifest right in the field of awareness, then they instantly liberate themselves. As a thought instantly observes itself, is self-illuminated, it is without an inherent nature, and there is nothing to see, there's no object really there to attend to, since it is instantly released, it is not immutable. It's just the opposite of immutable. It's extremely mutable. So that's the third one. Instantly liberated. It sounds really easy. Instantly liberated. Since the arisen thought occurs by itself, from this perspective, remember, it's rang, rang jung, rang jung. It's self-emergent from the rigpa protective. It just, just like just, just comes up. Right? You say, what caused it? What caused it? And from the Rick perspective, nothing caused it. It's just like that. And if you're right there, it goes like that when it comes up. Then, since it occurred all by itself, rang jung, just like that, then it goes so easy. Just comes up and then goes. No perturbation, no affliction anywhere in sight. How could something that is that wispy, unborn, empty, devoid of inherent nature, just goes, how could that hurt anybody? It's like a little flickering on a television screen. How's that going to hurt anybody? So that's that. It's completely liberated. Since the arisen thought occurs by itself, its release is also complete. So now there's no need to exert effort to release it. That sounds really good, especially the older you get, I'm telling you. The older you get, the better this sounds. You know, you just don't, if you get older, you just don't have that much juice to go off and, you know, really try hard a long time. And you also know you're running out of time. So you want something, if there's something that's instant, you definitely want to go for that. If one arises, one thought, if one arises, it is primordially liberated. If two arise, they are self-liberated, instantly liberated, and completely liberated. It's sounding better as we go. This critical point of the manner of their liberation has not been fathomed until now. Thoughts are grasped in the usual way. And as a result, you wander in samsara. And there is no time when you are liberated. So this is a revolution then. This means that you, you never... I mean, revolu- I love the word, as we see it historically played out. And I think I've mentioned this. I'll just give one example. Before Galileo, widely assumed the earth was in the center. And very, very, very reasonably, certainly seems to be. And then discoveries made. And then, if you've understood Galileo, his discoveries, and later discoveries, then you simply cannot view the universe in that way anymore. It just, it, it's, you, you can't. You can't. You, you really can't. Uh, you simply have to view the night sky and the Earth itself in a different way. And that's a revolution, and it's quite, quite striking. I mean, the, the repercussions of that. The repercussions of that. If we're not in the center then, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian story of, you know, we're here. I mean, God created us, this planet, this, 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 as if the, I, now I understand it's 4,000 stars we can see with the naked eye. I just got corrected on that one. I read something. You look into the night sky in a nice clear night, 4,000 stars, 4,000 dots of light. And so that's very comfortable. You know, it's kind of like, thank you, Lord. I really enjoy your exterior decoration. It, it, nicely done. You know. And the way you made the sun and the moon just the right, the same size, we had these eclipses like we had two days ago. That was, that was, that was really cool. 
and we have the solar and the lunar. It's so, and the sunsets are really gorgeous. So, you know, thank you. It's a really good job. We really enjoy being in the center of your creation. You know, it's cool. It makes sense. I'm not speaking sarcastically. And then you see, oh, we're not in the center. Oh, okay. that's a revolution. And he's talking about a revolution here. Right? And that is for countless, who knows, how many lifetimes, countless lifetimes. Just the thoughts come up and we, we, we grasp onto them. And then there's no liberation anywhere in sight. I mean, it really does perpetuate itself eternally until you learn. So, unless you learn the manner of liberation, those four points, primordial, self-liberated, instantly liberated, completely liberated, until, it, when, until you fathom that, then thoughts are grasped in the usual way. Well, you know exactly what that is. I'm thinking the thought, and then I'm reifying the thought, and that's it, that's enough. That, that'll keep you in samsara. That, that'll be enough right there. I'm thinking thought, reify the thought. Well, that's, that's it. Now you're caught totally in dualistic grasping, then you've bought yourself a, an infinite lease on samsara. Right? But he's speaking here of a, a revolution that is, again, irreversible. You can't go from pre-Copernican or pre-Galilean to post and then change your mind. You can't, but no, actually, I, I, I'm more comfortable thinking the earth is in the center. Not an option. Right? That's what a revolution is about. It's one way. And so once you have fathomed this, you really couldn't go back. You'd have to have I mean, severe brain damage to go back and do the same thing all over again. So this is really a revolution, a very deep one. So as a result, you wander, you wander in samsara, there's no time when you're liberated. Now with the four types of liberation, know the problem. Once your lama, your guru, has pointed it out and the certainty of liberation has arisen, you receive the instructions, you put them into practice, and you see for yourself that these thoughts do liberate themselves in that fashion. They're primordially liberated and so on. Now, what do you have to do with many med now what do you have to do with meditations that entail wielding the spike of mental grasping? Like a good old fashioned, you know, good old fashioned instead of a, a spike, right? Like it's, isn't the chain and the spike? And going around and trying to bash all the negative the negative thoughts, all the mental fictions one after another. Hordes of them, eighty four thousand, coming, coming, coming. <laughs> What's the point? You, know, you don't need to wield that weapon any longer, battling, grasping with grasping. What's the point? Whatever appears, let it go as self-liberating. That sounds simple, and in fact it is. Do not meditate. Let awareness roam freely. Settle your awareness evenly. So you see how remarkably similar that instruction is right there to what comes in kindergarten in the Vajra essence and so forth and so on and so on. That, that taking the mind as a path, you know, that's before Vipassana. And Vipassana is before state regeneration and then completion. And that's before texture. But this, this, but this sounds like what was there in, in kindergarten, right? And so the method is remarkably similar, almost identical. Difference being that when you're taking the mind as a path, when you begin, when you, when you start on the first day, it's the conceptual mind observing the conceptual, conceptual mind. And that is your vantage point, your perspective as a beginner. 
You're observing it, making sense of it. You're seeing everything through your, through your conceptual grid. Seeing everything through your conceptual grid, right? Like watching a football game, whether it's you know, European soccer, European football, American football, but when you're watching a football game, you're making sense of everything that's going on. American football, I understand. So when I see, you know, I, when I see the quarterback get the ball, I understand everything that's happening. I'm not, a, I'm not an aficionado of football, but there's no part that's mysterious. He passes it. I know he has to pass this way. He can, he can hand, he hand it off. He can throw it. He can run. There's no surprises there. I'm, to, I'm, I'm totally get it. I've watched many football games. So that's watching a football game through the grid of knowing a lot about football games. And I used to play when I was a tiny kid. You know? So that's it. Well, that's how we watch the mind, like a football game. And we're making sense of it, all of it. Yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, yeah, there's an emotion. Yep, 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 there it goes the four. And throwing a pass over to desire. Oh, desire went over to intention. <laughs> Running for the goal line. Aha, you know. Uh, here's excitation coming up. And oh, there goes horse excitation. Ah, dissolved into, back to, the, you know, you're seeing play-by-play action. You know, and it all makes sense. It all makes sense. That's watching the mind with a conceptual mind. Until you gradually learn how to relax. And you can see you can actually know everything that's going on without the commentary. It's exactly like that. Really, isn't it close? It's like a sports commentary. It's exactly like that. But you know, after you've watched a few football games, you don't really need the commentary. You can just watch the game. You don't need somebody to tell you, yes, that is 45 running with the ball. Yes, I can see that. Why don't you just hush? I'd just like to watch the game. Would you please shut up? So you can just watch the mind without a commentary. Right? And then as you relax more and more, that is your subjective awareness of what's going on in the mind, in this integrated system of the awareness and what you're aware of, as these two are getting gradually unconfigured, gradually settling, 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 then your perspective from which you're watching the mind is gradually simplifying, getting unconfigured, 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 until you know what happens, at least conceptually, your mind dissolves into substrate consciousness, and that which you are attending to dissolves into the substrate. Right? But you're doing pretty much this method. But now we have the same method, but now having gone through all these stages, the shamatha, the pashana, the, the pointing out instructions, the dream yoga, and so forth, so really you're assuming now you have realization, realization of rikpa. You're doing the same practice all over again. But now from a deeper perspective. The method looks pretty much identical. But where are you starting from? In taking the mind as a path, you're starting from the conceptual mind, observing the conceptual mind, slowly drifting toward or descending to, observing the mind from the perspective of pristine, from, from the perspective of substrate consciousness. But here, you've already made it to the ground. You're already viewing from the ground. That's why it says, from your perspective, unborn. If you're viewing from the substrate consciousness, it's born. If you're viewing the conceptual mind, it's born, right? And you can see the causes, the causal nexus that gave rise to it. But if you've already made it to the ground, if you're already viewing from the perspective of pristine awareness, then you see it as unborn. It never comes into existence. It doesn't come from anywhere. It's not located anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. And you see it self-liberating, right? Because you see it as an effulgence of your own pristine awareness. And so from that perspective, you do the same method. But now you're seeing them in a much deeper way. You're doing the same method, but you're seeing them while realizing emptiness and while viewing them from the perspective of the great perfection, pristine awareness. So it's 
But it's the parallel, so cool, so deep. So this is why I keep on teaching these three modes of shamatha for years and years now. Three and then four, because I just added this little nuance of merging the mind with space. Because it would be very nice to be able to take an eight-week retreat or a weekend retreat, one-week retreat, and it would be very nice to realize Rikpa. Actually, you know, to ascertain Rikpa. That would be very nice. And then you go home, and you go home practicing Dzogchen. That would be very nice. And I'm sure, because I have faith, I'm sure there are people that are very gifted. And I'm sure I don't know who they are. And with so, when the wonderful lamas are giving weekend retreats, longer retreats, and they're teaching Dzogchen, and they're talking about Rikpa, I, I've kind of decided some time ago, um, shut up. I mean, if I talk, what's the point? What do I know? This person is gifted, this person isn't gifted. I can't even tell who's a bodhisattva, let alone this person has realized Rick, but this hasn't. So, you know, if the motivation is pure, people are getting benefit, then shut up. You know? And if people think they're dwelling in Rikpa, maybe they are. And maybe they're not. But that's between them and their lama. That's bottom line, isn't it? Between them and their lama. We don't need any outside persons telling them getting in the way, intervening, so no, you're not realizing Rikpa, your Lama misled you. Shut up! Not, not anybody's position to do that. If this person has found a Lama that that person has faith in, then carry on. And it's their, their business, like a marriage. Don't mess with somebody else's marriage. I make a big point of not doing that as a Dharma teacher. I actually think I've been homogenous. I don't think I've ever messed with anybody's marriage. Totally unethical. Totally, totally. Isn't that right? I mean, it's just basic decency. It's not something, oh, look how good I am. Basic decency. It doesn't always follow, but it, people don't always follow basic decency, but it is still basic decency. And if we haven't even learned that, then we don't know much about, know much about Dharma at all. So, there it is. These four types of liberation did not originate from the profound instructions of the guru. In other words, they're not Buddhist. You didn't get them from the, from the guru. You did not discover them by being fine, courageous people. Right? So don't be proud about it. You did not happen to discover them by being very lucky. <laughs> it's a very literal translation. The character of all sentient beings primordially remains as these four great types, but they do not, but they do not know they are liberated. In other words, the thoughts of all sentient beings. Thoughts of all sentient beings are primordially liberated, self-liberated, instantly liberated, completely liberated. That's their nature. That's what things look like. That's what things look like as they appear when you're viewing from the perspective of the great perfection. You're seeing all these sentient beings. And each one is actually free. And they don't know it. So I've translated number of texts by now. And sometimes the author, Dujum Lingbo or Padmasambhava, whoever it may be, be giving prose, 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 and then suddenly slip into verse. It's always nicer in Tibetan. Always nicer, because it's got a meter, it flows, it flows. In Tibetan, it's always clunky, but in English. But at least you get the meaning, if not the, the beauty of it. But I've, I've, read, I've translated a number of these, where they'll slip into, into verse, and it will start like, hey, hey, hey. Or, <laughs> you know, I, it's a terrible imitation, but they're just starting with, like, laughter. Like, 
how can it be how can it be so? Everybody's free and they don't know it. They're striving so hard, even striving so hard in Dharma. And but they're already free. So there's that's where it's not it's not humor, but it is like it really it's they're not saying anything funny. They're seeing us as funny. We're the joke. Not like a bad joke, but just like comic. You know, the divine comedy. Bound by the ungraspable. So we see irony there. Bound by the ungraspable, they remain wandering about in samsara. Bound by that which is unbound. Bound by that which is unborn. Bound by that which is self-liberating. They remain wandering about in the samsara from their perspective. While they roam in samsara, they've never been part, parted from the four great ways of liberation. It is impossible for them to part from them, and they will not. In other words, all sentient beings are primarily free. Whatever may be perceived as mental afflictions or obscurations, primordially self-liberating. Self-liberating, instantly liberating, completely liberating. All we have to do is just stop grasping. While their character is liberated due to grasping, they're subject to confusion, and they continue to experience suffering. I can't imagine, but I can imagine trying to imagine what this might look like. I can imagine the kind of the, the pathos, not quite humor, but the pathos when you're seeing this and you raise the question, why couldn't all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? It's not like they have to do a whole lot of work. Like, you know, well, give them three countless eons, they'll figure it out. It's kind of like, no, right now, right now, why couldn't all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Why couldn't all sentient beings right now experience happiness and the causes of happiness? Because they already have the causes of happiness. And they're already free of suffering and its causes. But they keep on grasping onto that which makes them self-imprisoned. And, and really, one can see that, but, but why is this necessary? Why should this go on? Why? I mean, really, I mean, really, why? When everything's already there just for it to, to solve itself. You don't need anything. You don't need, you don't need to become a Kempo or a Geshe or a Lama or a Tuku or Arya Bodhisattva. It's kind of like everything's already there. Just, just stop it. <laughs> that really should be enough. You know, just point out the problem. You know grasping? You know about grasping, yeah? Stop it. <laughs> and Tibetan, well, that's, stop, that's pretty two, two pretty short syllables, but the Tibetans don't mince term. They just say, Pow! that should be enough. But, you know, what, would, would you repeat that, please? Which part of pet didn't you understand? So, for example, even when they painfully experience the suffering of vichy hell, the deepest hell, they suffer without recognizing that their character remains in the four great types of liberation. 
So it's only because of grasping that hell burns, that it torments. There's a caveat to that. Be short. Story of the of the Buddha, probably from the Jataka. I think it's the moment when it said that he first Gautama in his previous life, when he first I believe it was when he first experienced great compassion, Mahakaruna. So quite a good story. So he's in hell. He's in hell. Now bear in mind, the hell is never ever ever in the Buddhist view something that somebody else does to you. God, Buddha, devas, or anything else like that. Whatever hell, it's as much your own creation as a nightmare. That is, the hell that you're inhabiting vanish as soon as you die from that hell. It's not waiting for, somebody, for a new, a new uh, client to come in, like a hotel. It's not like hell hotel, where you get a certain, you know, you, you, you stay there for some nights, and then you leave and somebody else moves in. It's your creation. So in this particular hell realm that, that arose from some negative activity of Gautama in some previous life. So there he is. And in this particular manifestation, he's a beast of burden, a beast of burden, like a great big bullock or something like that. And he's yoked. And there's another, there's another big beast of burden that they're teamed up, as often happens with wagons, two great big muscular beasts. And they're pulling this enormous wagon piled high with really heavy stuff and going up a really steep grade. And so they're just straining. You can easily imagine it. We've all seen something like this. They're just straining. You can imagine their paws just kind of trying to get some traction as they're going up this steep thing. And in the meantime, the wagoneer is whipping them, just mercilessly, just whipping them, tearing their flesh, you know, forcing them on, forcing them on. And so as they're being, you know, trying, just struggling to make it up, while being beaten in the process, as if they're not trying hard enough. Bearing in mind, they're beaten, beaten by their own minds, right? There's nobody else doing it. Shanti Dave is very clear on that point. There's nobody else doing it. They're not beings who are employees in hell realms. <laughs> you know, it would definitely be minimum salary if there were. But there aren't any, you know. They, are, they have the same ontological status as beings in your dreams. But beings in dreams can also give you nightmares. So there they're going. And finally, the Gautama's companion, this other great bullock or what have you, uh, the whip comes down on him. Wow! You know? And this poor creature, he just collapses. He goes right down on his knees. Like he's just had it. He's completely spent. He's wasted. He's about to keel over. And of course, that makes the wagoneer even more furious. And he just starts beating him, beating him mercilessly. And Gautama turns his head back to the wagoner and says, don't beat him, beat me. And in that moment, the, uh, the whip comes down on him. In the, right, instantly, the whip comes right down on him, kills him, and he's liberated from hell. And a good reason for that. You can't stay in hell with great compassion. The great compassion, that wielded the whip to release him from hell. So that's the other way of getting out of hell. Method and wisdom, he keeps on coming back to that. Wisdom and compassion, wisdom and compassion. Release all grasping. You can stay in hell as long as you like. I think that's what Yeshin Gontaiki was, in, was, was intending when he said I should be happy to go to hell. Not that I should be happy just to be tortured for a long time. Because I wouldn't be. 
but if I could go with wisdom, then it would be quite okay without grasping. Wouldn't like the scenery that much, but at least, you know, it wouldn't be torment. So one way to be able to actually hang out in hell and try to do some good there would be with wisdom. And the other way would be with compassion that simply releases you instantly. Okay? So as a parable, that's a very powerful one, I think. So if they were to know, these denizens of Avicii hell, if they were to know that the innate character of the thoughts of suffering is liberated, that the very thought, the very experience, the sensations, if they knew that these were by nature liberated, there would never be any suffering. If they could simply be aware of them without grasping, without identification, without reification, there would be never suffering, even in hell. Due to being obscured by the three kinds of ignorance, they do not know the manner of their liberation. Now, the three kinds of, libera- three kinds of ignorance, I, I uh, checked that out. It's very interesting, very important, and I'm not going to talk about it tonight because I don't want to run through it. So we'll pick up on that. It'll be a nice segue to tomorrow. Three kinds of ignorance, very deep, really good, really, really good. That's enough for tonight. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.